today, Father, and start our morning out as a church, as a congregation before you, Lord, declaring that we are yours. And what better way to open ourselves up to you this morning than to giving you the credit and giving you the glory, Lord God, for our lives. And Father, we are yours. And we worship you today. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning, Southfield. Last week was Easter, and we were celebrating the resurrection of Christ, and uh, he's still alive today. So that's awesome news, right? It doesn't just end with one Sunday. Um, this morning, Dennis is going to begin a new series, a new sermon series based on Second Timothy. Um, it's going to last a few weeks. So we're going to dive right in and, and see how we're living up to how we're supposed to live as Christ followers. And as we continue in worship and before we sing the next song, um, I just want to share another verse with you from Romans 8. It's a couple of verses, actually, and it's from the message. Um, And it just says that he knows us far better than we know ourselves, referring to Jesus Christ. That's why we can be so sure that every detail in our lives of love for God is worked into something good. Now, I know that we're not all going through the harvest right now. Some of us are going through a battle or a desert, some bad stuff. And uh, I just want to encourage you that if you're walking with God, it's going to work out. And it's going to work out for his good and your, and your good and for his glory. And so you're not the exception. Just hold that in your heart. You're not the exception. It will work out for you too. wonder if you've made your summer vacation plans yet. It is the middle of April. I know it's kind of confusing with the weather and all. Uh, maybe because of gas prices, you're thinking staycation this year. I don't know. You got something going on in your mind. Way back in the day, 1998, when gas prices were hovering about a buck, uh, we decided to go on a, on a family vacation all the way out to Montana. Uh, Nate was a little over a year old at that time. So this was adventurous, strapping a year-old kid into a car seat and saying, hey, we're going to drive thousands of miles. This is what we in the business call purgatory. But it was a great time. We had a lot of fun. We went along with Kim's mom and dad and and her brother and sisters and, and just had a fantastic time all the way out there in the beautiful mountains of Montana. In order to get there, you can take a couple of different ways from here, but most people, it seems, take the South Dakota route. That's the way you go to Montana. Uh, How do you describe South Dakota? It is long, it is flat, and with the exception of Sioux Falls, a mountain with some faces on it, 
uh, and the Badlands, it is very boring. It's just a boring drive. There's nothing you can do about it except step on the gas and get through it as quick as you can. We decided to make a bit of an adventure of the trip. So this is a typical stretch of South Dakota Highway. Do you see where it ends out there? No, that's not Montana. It's just more South Dakota. And you just keep going. So what we would do is we'd come to the top of what they call a hill. And and we'd be on this hill and look as far as we could see. And we'd guess how far it was to the next hilltop. Generally, it was somewhere between 6 and 10 miles. And we'd take that guess. And that's the way we went through South Dakota. 10 miles at a time. Just (laughs) chopping it into pieces until the drive was done. I'm not really crazy about driving. Two hours is about my limit. But some of you, you're road trippers. I mean, you just love it. You love to pack up the old Tercel and take a nice drive all the way across the country. You'll go forever. I mean, you just absolutely love it. Sunny skies and beauty. Some of you even get really gutsy. You get on the back of your bike. You get on your your hog. And you ride all the way across the country. And you're just, ah, this is great. Bugs in the windshield or in the face. It's just, this is what life is all about, right? Some days driving can be amazing and beautiful and brilliant. I mean, you just look at the scenery and you can't believe the beauty of God's creation. You'll be driving along and the sun will paint the sky in a way that only God can paint the sky. It's absolutely stunning. Whether it's a rising sun or a setting sun, it doesn't matter. These trips just bring out the beauty of our country. But after a while, you can only stand so much beauty. And you're like, you know what? I just want to get this trip done. Hit fast forward. Let's go. And so you just start to fly. You go as fast as you can. You say, fast forward button, please. I want done. Until finally, finally you get to your destination. Whether it's the Grand Canyon rocky mountains or a white sandy beach you're finally there now if the trip is long enough chances are you'll run into a day that is not pleasant and beautiful in fact it is possible that you'll run into a day that looks rather ominous you you just kind of look out and the weather is threatening the road is just it's terrible it's treacherous and the scenery is foreboding. And you're driving along and you're thinking, I'm, I'm not sure that I should even be in a car. And if you're one of those venturesome souls that likes to go to Oklahoma or Kansas every once in a while, the trip goes from threatening to even perilous and dangerous as you're taking that trip across our country. When the trip gets ominous, when it gets perilous, when it gets threatening... There are a few of you that are gutsy and you like to drive into the storm. And the rest of us head in the other direction or into a ditch or a Motel 6 or whatever. We're just not into getting into the worst of the storm. You know, the same is true with our spiritual journey. As you've been on a spiritual journey and God's been taking you places, you have days of beauty. You have days that you just think, life couldn't get any better than this. It is amazing. And truthfully, you have days that are ominous. And you have days that are perilous. And you have days that are just plain troublesome. Most people do well on sunny days when the spiritual road is clear. But when it is treacherous, many of us get timid. 
we get fearful and we turn back or we duck for cover. What we're going to do is spend the next few weeks looking at a man in the Bible who was on a long spiritual journey. And his tendency when he saw storms, when he saw um, ominous terrain, was to back off, to pull a punch, to be timid, and to be fearful. Fortunately, he had a mentor. He had a person who was willing to help him through his times of timidity. To help him to find the courage that God had given to him. And so over the next several weeks, we're going to be looking at the little book in the Bible, four-chapter book, a letter really, called 2 Timothy. And the title of this series is Timely Tips for Timid People in Troublesome Times. Ah, there's so much alliteration there. A pastor gets very, very happy. That's wonderful. I got to admit to you, this is not my title and the outline is not mine. This goes all the way back for me when I was a kid in camp at 15, 16, and 17 years old. I'd go away for the summer and work at a camp and there was this guy that would come. He was well into his late 80s, but he preached like he was in his 20s. And he talked about this idea of timely tips for timid Timothy in troublesome times. And I have waited ever since 16, to steal his title and steal his outline and have fun studying this book. So this is what we're going to do for the next several weeks. We're going to look at how do you deal with life when it's threatening, when it's foreboding. We're supposed to stand boldly for God. How do we do that in the face of a culture that's saying, you stand up, we're going to whack your head. Sometimes as a Christ follower, you feel like you're playing a game of whack-a-mole, you know? If you just keep low enough, nobody will notice. But God doesn't want us to stay low. God wants us to be bold. He wants us to be courageous for Him. And so Paul is going to teach us how we can muster that kind of courage. We've had a Sunday night small group going that's been talking about Bible interpretation. And one of the things that group has learned by now is that if you're going to understand a book or a letter, you've got to understand its background. There are some things you have to know, and as you know the background, as you know the author, you know who it's written to, you know the circumstances of the writing, as those things come together, you can have a better understanding of what the book is all about. So I'd like to hit some background issues of 2 Timothy. It was written by the Apostle Paul, first of all. I mean, Paul wrote the the better part of the the New Testament. He wrote a great portion of the book. He starts out right away in the book and says, this letter is from Paul. It's kind of interesting. Modern letters, how do they end? Sincerely, Dennis. He starts with, sincerely, Paul. You're working with the scroll. You need to know, who is this coming from? This letter is from Paul. Chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. I've been sent out to tell others about the life he has promised through faith in Christ Jesus. If you're looking for a a life mission statement, this one is beautiful. I have been sent out to tell others about the life he has promised. Through faith in Christ Jesus. He was describing what it meant to be a Christ follower. Uh, This is the last book that Paul writes. The very last one. Uh, It is probably written in or within uh, the last year of his life. And I don't know about you, but when I hear that this is the last book that he wrote, I'm thinking, last words matter. 
Nobody says their last words, you know, kind of, hey, don't forget to turn off the stove. You use last words very, very carefully, don't you? They matter. They're very, very important. These four chapters are the last words he sang to someone he loves, to someone he's passionate about. These words matter. They matter deeply. You're going to hear some emotion here. You're going to hear a guy who cares, who cares a lot about Timothy. All of this is part of this book. It, it's written, written from prison. Here he is. Paul's in prison. Let me, let me show you the verse. He says, And God chose me to be a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher of the good news. That is why I'm suffering in prison. He says, I'm in prison. You know why? Because I stood up and was counted for Christ. Because I said, I'm with him. And people said, we don't like that. Go to jail. And not just go to jail, but he was in jail awaiting his death. The death sentence was on him, and he's waiting to die. I want you to think about it for a moment. What kind of letter would you write to someone? You're in jail waiting for your execution. What kind of letter would you write? What would you say to a person that you really care about? What would those last words look like? You got to understand this prison physically was no club med. There were beatings, disease, vermin. People didn't care if you died. They didn't care if you were mistreated. Most people were sent to prison to die. That's why you were there. And it's in that setting that he writes this letter. And he writes it, and there's this sense of urgency about him in writing it. Hear these words. In 2 Timothy 4, the end of the book, verse 9, he says, Timothy, please come as soon as you can. Do you hear him? I mean, he's just like, I'm alone. I'm alone here. Would you please just come as soon as you can? And then he starts to detail not the conditions of the prison, but the fact that he had been abandoned. The fact that he was all by himself. And I mean, here's a man that's responsible for the better part of our understanding of the Christian faith. And in his final moments, nobody wanted to be with him. Nobody wanted to spend a moment with him. him. Please come to me as soon as you can. He says, Demas has deserted me because he loves the thing of life and has gone to Thessalonica. I don't know if you've ever been involved in nurturing and discipling, helping a person along in their faith. There is not a lot that's more discouraging than when that person looks you in the eyes and says, yeah, whatever, taking a pass. A Jesus thing, it's neat for you, it's not for me. And they decide to start investing themselves in the things of this temporal world instead of continuing to pursue their faith in God. That broke Paul's heart. He talked about other people that went on to to other places of ministry and were not with him anymore. He says in verse 11, only Luke is with me right now. Luke, who wrote the book of Luke and the book of Acts. Luke, who is a physician by trade and and a part-time historian. Here he is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writing the history of Jesus and writing the history of the church in both Luke and Acts. He says, bring Mark with you when you come, for he is helpful to me in my ministry. Back in the book of Acts, you'd find that that Paul actually separated from a ministry partner over a disagreement about Mark. The ministry partner wanted to bring him along, and Paul said, he's too immature. He'll just bog us down. And they actually separated over that. And now here is at the end of his life saying, bring Mark. He could be useful to me. He talks about the fact that he had sent Tychicus to Ephesus. He's alone. And he's feeling the full sense of his loneliness there in prison. He says, when you come, be sure to bring my coat. 
Uh, he left it in, in, uh, with Carpus in Troas. You see that, uh, you see that in uh, Acts chapter 20. He says, bring my books, bring my papers. He's saying basically, what little I have in this world, bring it. I'm about to die. Then he talks about betrayal. He says, Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm, but the Lord will judge him for what he has done. Be careful of him, for he fought against everything we said. Some conjecture that it's Alexander's fault. He's responsible for Paul being in prison and for Paul's pending execution. We're not sure if that's the case or not. Nonetheless, here's a person who betrayed him, and he's feeling the full weight of that betrayal. It's under these conditions that he writes this book. Not just in prison, physically, but in prison in loneliness, separated from people he loves, people he cares about. His friends have turned away, and his foes hate him desperately. Look at verse 16. It says, the first time I was brought before the judge, he comes to trial, no one stood with me. It kind of reminds you of Jesus in his trial, doesn't it? By himself, no disciples with him, nobody there to support him. He's alone. Here's the apostle Paul. And not one person was willing to stand and say, I'm with him. Not one. Everyone abandoned me. I mean, can you think of a more lonely statement than that right there? Everyone abandoned me. I am alone. And then he says, may it not be counted against them. Then he comes out with this just amazing, hopeful verse. He says, but the Lord stood with me and gave me strength so I might preach the good news in its entirety for all the Gentiles to hear. And he rescued me from certain death. He said that day I would have died, but Jesus rescued me. Yes, and the Lord will deliver me from every evil attack and bring me safely into the, his, his heavenly kingdom. All glory to God forever and ever. Amen. Even in his pain of betrayal and loneliness, he has hope. Even in his despair, he has hope. I love his optimism. And yet in all of that optimism, he still comes back and says, do your best to get here before winter. Why winter? What's that all about? Well, first of all, you didn't travel in the winter. You traveled up through late fall, and then the weather got too bad, and the ice got too thick to be able to travel. So he's basically saying, get here before winter, because if you wait till spring, I probably won't be alive. By spring, I'll probably be dead. And I want to see you one last time. Well, based on the name of the book, you know that the book is uh, it's written to Timothy. It's written by Paul from prison, and it's written to Timothy. What do we know about Timothy? He says in verse 2, I'm writing to Timothy, my dear son. Now, he's not his physical son. He's his spiritual son. He's responsible uh, for him growing in his faith. In fact, he talks about meeting him. In Acts chapter 16, it says, Paul went first to Derby and then to Lystra, where he met a young disciple named Timothy. His mother was a Jewish believer and his father was a Greek. So we have a guy that comes from a mixed religious background. Mother is a believer and a Jew. Father is a Greek and it doesn't say if he's a believer or not. Timothy was well thought of by the believers in Lystra and Iconium, so Paul wanted him to join him on his journey. And then we see this part that's interesting. In defense to the Jews of the area, he arranged for Timothy to be circumcised before they left, for everyone knew his father was a Greek. What we find here is a principle that happens time and time again with the Apostle Paul. He wanted nothing to come in the way of bringing the gospel to people. He wanted no side arguments. He wanted to talk about Jesus and Jesus alone. The cross and the cross alone. 
So even something like this, he said, I want to eliminate the argument. Let's just not even have it. Let's talk about what matters. Then they went from town to town, instructing the believers to follow the decisions of the apostles and elders in Jerusalem. And it says the churches were strengthened in their faith and grew larger every day. What we see is a person in Timothy who goes from being uh, mentored by Paul to really becoming a partner with, in ministry with Paul. Every day, the churches are being strengthened by their ministry together. But, you know, this is beyond just two guys working together. There's a real emotional bond between them. And you see it in chapter 1 of 2 Timothy. He says, Timothy, I thank God for you. The God I serve with a clear conscience, just as my ancestors did, night and day I constantly remember you in my prayers, and I long to see you again, for I remember your tears as we parted, and I want to be filled with joy when we're together again. It's likely that that crying happened in in Acts chapter 20, when Paul is leaving Ephesus for what turns out to be the last time, and the believers are pretty confident it's going to be the last time they see him. And so verse 37 says they cried and embraced and kissed and said goodbye to him. It's an emotional moment, and it's burned in Paul's head as he thinks, the last time I saw you, you were weeping. You thought we'd never see each other again. I want to be with you. There's an incredible emotional bond between these two men. So it's written by Paul, written from prison, written to Timothy, Why is it written? Well, it's written for encouragement. Timothy needed some encouragement. Paul and Timothy had spent enough time together that I'm sure Paul had gotten to know the spirit of Timothy. He had come to know who he was on the inside. He saw how he handled sunny days and he saw how he handled the ominous parts of the journey. And he saw how he handled moments that were perilous. And it's possible that in Timothy, Paul saw a guy that when times got tough, he'd shrink back. He wouldn't speak as forcefully as he should. He pulled a punch. And so Paul wants to, in this final letter of his life, encourage Timothy to stand strong, to be bold, to not shrink back, to have courage. Because after all, this is a guy who lived in troublesome times, and we do too. We live in some pretty troublesome times. We live in a time that if you raise your head high enough for Jesus Christ, it's probably going to get whacked. Someone's not going to like what you're saying. Someone's not going to like you acknowledging what the word of God has to say or sharing truth. And it's our temptation in the name of of some form of tolerance or, or politeness to shrink back and say, I'll just keep my opinion to myself. But see, it's not my opinion. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the word of God. It's not just my opinion. So it's not my place to just shrink back. I need to stand bold. What Paul saw in Timothy was a man who had a spirit of fear and timidity. And it really brings us to one of the key verses of the book. A verse I'd encourage you to write down and get in your head. It says, God has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity, but of power and love and self-discipline, or power, love, and a sound mind. He says, that timid feeling you have, that lack of courage, that's not from God. That's from another spirit, and it's not a good spirit. It's not the right spirit. Paul wanted people to stand bold. He wanted Timothy to stand bold. You may wonder, why was Timothy fearful? He had several reasons. I mean, one is what was happening to Paul. Here Paul's imprisoned. 
Paul's about to be executed. I don't know about you, but I don't know that I want to follow a guy that's about to be executed. If standing boldly led to a death sentence, maybe there's a better way. Maybe there's a way that we can do this that doesn't land us in prison. Maybe there's a way that we can do this a polite way, a nicer, a kinder, gentler way that makes sure that we don't get in trouble. And so maybe he was pulling back because he's seeing what happened to Paul and he doesn't want it to happen to him. I mean, Paul says to him, endure suffering along with me as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. He says, "Uh, yeah, the trouble is going to come your way. Maybe it just comes down to the fact that he, he, feared, he feared the troubled times that were ahead. He knew that, that, that terrible times were coming. Paul talked about that in the book of 2 Timothy as well. You should know that terrible times are coming. They're coming. They'll be there. They'll be there soon. And maybe he's thinking, oh my goodness, in these terrible times, the best way to survive is to keep your head low. Maybe his fear comes from the fact that he knows what's about to be handed to him. I'll tell you what, there's some awesome responsibility even here in knowing that there are people in 1881 that said, we want to establish a gospel force for Jesus Christ in this town. And it's been passed on and passed on and passed on. And now it's our turn. And are we going to pass it on well or not? Maybe Timothy is going through this moment of realizing that the gospel has been entrusted to him. And now he's supposed to entrust it to someone else. And he's looking and he's saying, I'm no apostle Paul. I mean, I don't know. You read Paul. Paul just sounds pretty bold. He doesn't sound like the kind of guy that goes, well, I know you have your opinion and I have my opinion. Eh, Let's just share coffee. I mean, Paul lays it out there. And Timothy's going, I don't have that style. I'm I'm more more laid back. I'm kind of nice. I I don't know that I want to take that approach. And so there's fear. I think overall what we see in Timothy is just lacking confidence. Certainly some personal lack of confidence, but maybe it could even be more more bold that, that he's lacking confidence in his calling lacking confidence in the word of God itself and in his power. And he's just shrinking back. And Paul is saying, don't shrink back. Stand up. Be bold for Jesus Christ. Stand with him. So that brings us then. Brings us then to our our first timely tip. And what is it? Uh, Two words. Stir up. Stir up. Stir up the gift God has given you. He wants Timothy to be confident. He wants to alleviate his worry. He longs to see him get a handle on his timid spirit. And so he says, stir up the gift that is within you. We saw this in 1 Timothy 1.6. It says, that is why I remind you to fan into flame the spiritual gift God gave you when I laid hands on you. He says, stir it up. Stoke the embers. Get the flame going hot once again. I'm not great at building a fire unless I have like five gallons of gas. And lots of matches. Then I'm great. Outside of that, it's a challenge. So I thought about having some of our Boy Scouts today come up and build a fire. But, you know, fire alarms. We weren't going to do that. Instead, I've turned to one of, my, one of my favorite outdoorsmen. And he's going to teach us now how to build a fire. But what I can do is try the bow and drill method. And uh, I've got a bit of power in it. So it's really nice and tight place it into a notch I've made down there and then just slowly start to drive and I hope you create enough friction to create some embers and then it's those embers that I want to be tipping into 
all that tinder. But it's beginning to smoke. No, I just need to keep it going now. Smoke. Ah, come on, yep. It's really hard to keep the spindle upright and work the bow at the same time. And while it's not too difficult to get smoke, creating an ember big enough to light a fire is something else altogether. Okay, here we go. It's coming, it's a bit of smoke now. I just need enough ember to tip into the tinning and this should be it. Here we go, come on. I love this guy. He's now got, in a few moments, a nice blaze going. He can ca- cook his latest, you know, catch of skunk or whatever he's going to eat tonight that's exotic. Me, I still need my five gallons of gas. When I, when I look at what he did here, building this fire, man, that was a lot of work. In fact, by the time he gets the fire built, he doesn't even need it. He's warm. You know, he's, that's been a lot of work. Uh, there's been a lot of work put into you. And a fire is blazing within you. And God's saying, don't ignore it. Stoke the flames. Keep blowing at it. Keep that flame red hot. It's so counterintuitive to blow on a flame, isn't it? That flame is so weak. I'm thinking what I need to do is get a jar and put it over it and make sure to keep it nice and safe. And you know what happens? You put a jar, it's gone. There needs to be some oxygen, some air brought to that flame to get it going once again. Sometimes that oxygen, we tend to say, no, I want to keep my gift safe. I'm going to keep my head low. I'm going to protect it. And the further we duck our heads, the further we protect it, the more we ensure that the fire is going to diminish instead of burning the way God wants it to burn. Well, Paul is going to help Timothy to have some resources that help him to keep his gift stirred up, to fan the flame. And here are the things that he encourages Timothy in. He says, first of all, if you're going to if you're going to get that flame going, burning bright once again, recount your spiritual heritage. And he reminds Timothy of his own spiritual heritage. In the first chapter, he says, I remember your genuine faith. He says, you have faith. And you share your faith that first filled your grandmother, Lois, and then your mother, Eunice, and now I'm sure lives in you. He says, go back and remember when you became a convert to Jesus Christ. Later in the book, he says, remember that you've been taught the Holy Scriptures from childhood. This isn't new stuff to you. You've received wisdom that comes from God. Go back and recount your spiritual heritage. Recount when you came to God, how it happened, what the circumstances were, the supernatural circumstances that brought that all together. Recount that day that you were dunked in the DuPage River or the day that you used your gift and you're like, wow, I can't believe what just happened. Think back to your heritage. When I think back to my spiritual heritage, it gets my flame burning brightly once again. I think back to 1970. My mom and my dad, their marriage was an absolute wreck. They tell stories that when I was six months old, they were already fighting over who was going to take me and how their marriage was going to end. By the time I was five, I knew that their marriage was in chaos, nonstop screaming and fighting. They did not want to be together. 
What we didn't know at that time is that both of them had started on a spiritual journey. My mom had started talking to some people who knew about how to come to faith in Jesus Christ. She met with the pastor and he led her to the Lord. My dad was really into reading. He got a hold of a Billy Graham book and started reading it. And it started to make sense. And there he's sitting on a garbage can at DuPont, this chemical factory in Niagara Falls. And he reads it and he comes to Christ. And this happened within a week of each other. My mom and dad became believers within a week of each other. And they didn't tell the other one that they were on the journey. Because they were afraid that if they told, the other one would want out. I'm not going to be married to a Jesus freak. And they finally had that conversation. Within a week of each other, two people who were a million miles away from God found God. And I look at that and go, that can only be the Spirit of God that did that. And we need to look back at those supernatural moments in our heritage where we say, only God could have done that. No other explanation could bring that about. Recount your spiritual heritage. He says further, revisit your spiritual calling. That, that's what we saw in 2 Timothy 1.6. So I remind you to fan and to flame the spiritual gift God gave you when I laid hands on you. He's saying basically, God called you, Timothy, to be a minister of Jesus Christ. So why are you holding back? God has a calling on your life. There is something he wants you to do. There is something he wants you to say. Why are you holding back? Revisit your calling. Revisit what you know God wants you to do and then ask yourself the question, what in the world is inhibiting me from using this gift? And you know the best way to get that gift fanned into full flame? Use it. Use it. Don't put it under a jar. Don't keep it safe for later. Use it. Get it into full action. So he says, recount that heritage. Revisit your spiritual calling. And then he goes further and says, you got to recall your spiritual character. We looked at this verse already. God has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity, but of power and love and self-discipline. God made you courageous. God gave you spiritual bravery. Timidity and fear come from a source other than God. Our spiritual character is power Love and self-discipline. He says, start thinking that way. Think about your true spiritual character. Not just the way you're acting right now. Think about the true spiritual character that God has given you. And then finally, he says, reflect on your spiritual examples. And in that, he talks about the relationship that he has with Timothy. The one that Paul has with Timothy. He says, hold on to the pattern of wholesome teaching you've learned from me. A pattern shaped by faith and love that you have in Christ Jesus. He says, you've watched me, now live it out. Do you have people in your life that have been strong spiritually, people that you can point to and say, that's what I'm supposed to look like. That's what I'm supposed to be like. These are the steps that Paul encourages Timothy to take in order to stir up once again that gift that is within him, to fan and to flame that gift. Who is God calling you to be? Who does God want you to be? Why are you afraid to be it? Why do you keep your head low? Why do you duck? Why do you you blend in so that nobody notices? What's that all about? What is God calling you to say? Something that may not be very popular in our times, but God is calling you to say. 
but you keep holding it back. You've got to be polite. Not offend anybody. So you keep it to yourself. Blow on the embers. Blow on the embers. Get that flame glowing once again. What is the right thing that you know you need to say or you need to do but timidity and fear is holding you back you've got to stir up your gift you've got to stir up your gift that's what paul tells timothy and that is what paul is telling us why are we so timid about our faith what is it about fear that is holding you back from your spiritual progress. There's a step you need to take and you keep saying, man, if I do that, ah, and fear is holding you back. What about these troubled times we live in causes you to shrink, causes you to keep your head low and say, I don't want to be noticed. I'm not speaking up. Hey, I'm not making waves. I'm keeping this to myself. Where's your boldness? Where's your courage? Where's your conviction? We're called. We're called to declare Jesus boldly. What holds us back? Why are we being fearful? Be strong and courageous. The Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Paul attested to that. He's alone in prison. He's alone at the trial. But the Lord his God was with him wherever he went. So be bold and courageous. Let's talk to Jesus right now. Jesus, in your trial, you were alone. Paul was alone at his trial. Maybe that's what we're afraid of. We're afraid we'll be alone. We're afraid nobody will want to be with us. Nobody will like us. Nobody will admire us. I don't know. Maybe we're afraid if we speak up, other people will be offended. Something holds us back from just boldly saying, I embrace Jesus. Help us to realize that that spirit of timidity and fear is not a spirit that comes from the Holy Spirit. It comes from an evil spirit, and we want nothing to do with it. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. I wanted to say thank you again today for uh, all of you who brought guests last week. It was a lot of fun to see your family and your friends. And, and I realize when you do that, that you're really, you're entrusting uh, them to us for an hour. And I, and I appreciate that trust. I know anytime you, you decide to invite someone, you know, your, your awareness gets real heightened. You hope that I don't do a sermon out of Leviticus that lasts for four hours or or we do something weird that embarrasses you and you've got to explain all the rest of your Easter dinner. So I, I hope that uh, the experience they had was very positive and that it's leading now to conversations that you're able to have with your friends about uh, either their potential relationship with God or, or their current relationship with God and where it needs to be going. So hopefully that just gave you a window, gave you an opportunity to continue to, to work on that part of their journey with them as, as you journey together. Uh, as, we, as we wrap up this morning, I want to I just go back for a moment to the, to the talk we did out of Timothy. I know that sometimes this idea of courage and boldness, it, it gets a little bit misunderstood 
We all, when we think courage and boldness, we think of Mel Gibson, Braveheart on the horse, you know, ah, getting everybody all whipped up. And, and, and that's really cool. And there are about three of you in the room that want to be that guy. And everybody else, we want to be way, way back in the crowd, way back. The, the first ones to turn and run when the battle gets kind of thick. And we're like, you know, boldness and courage, that's made for the, for the gutsy guys, the gutsy women. But you don't get it. I'm not that style. God's called us all to be bold and courageous in our own way. Every one of us. He's called all of us to stand and lift our head high for Christ. And I want to ask you a question. I mean, we just got done talking about Jesus and what he went through in his trial. That he was alone. Jesus was alone in his trial. Can you imagine the miracles he had done? The teaching he had done. He's God. Nobody stood with him. The Apostle Paul, the man wrote Romans. I don't even understand Romans. The man wrote Romans. I mean, he's just, he's, he's, a, he's a pillar of our faith. He's one of the apostles. And he says, everyone abandoned me. Where would you have been in those trials? Would you have been hiding in the weeds saying, I hope they don't notice that I'm a Christian? Or would you have been standing in the room pointing and saying, I'm with him. I'm with him. That's what God's calling us to do in real life. He's asking us to hold our heads high and say, I'm with him. And take whatever consequences that come our way. Now, I'm not calling you today to be obnoxious. Some people equate brave and courage with being obnoxious. So I'm just going to become some freak for Jesus. You go be a freak. We're not talking about being freaks. We're talking about being bold and courageous. We're talking about being willing to stand and say, I'm with him. Are you there? Are you there? Are you willing to stir up the gifts so that you can say, I'm with him? Let's stand together and pray before we go. God, truth, most, truth is most of us want to live pretty ordinary, common lives. We don't want to be noticed. We don't want to put our heads up high. We don't want to stand. We don't want to raise our hand. We don't want anybody seeing us. We just, we just want a comfortable life. Courage, bravery, eh, that gets you killed. We don't want that. We don't want to be noticed. But you have not given us a spirit of fear and timidity, but a spirit of power and love and self-discipline. And so today I pray as we leave this place, you will give us opportunities this week to be able to point and say, I'm with him. And in that moment, we'll know the gift has been stirred up. The, The flame has been fanned. We've owned Jesus. Amen. Have a great week. Be brave. 